with another episode of the Fertility Podcast. I'm Natalie, your host. This is an episode with a difference. It's from a really interesting event that I was invited to speak at the other week. I'm putting this out on the 7th of October in 2019, if you're listening in real time. And I was invited to be part of the Dive-In Festival, which is a global festival put on by the insurance industry. And it was the result of me speaking out about my experience of having fertility treatment whilst hosting a breakfast radio show in Grazia magazine earlier this year. This episode is being made in partnership with AXA, who asked me to come and talk at their event. And I did this great interview with Sheila Cameron, who is the CEO for the Lloyds Market Association. She's been talking more and more about her experience in her work setting and been having more conversations with women going through a similar thing. She was on the panel that I hosted at the event. Um, There was another lady, an amazing lady called Anne Cameron. Again, top level CEO who went through five rounds of treatment back to back, kept it all on a spreadsheet, was adamant she was going to get to the next position, next position, was traveling abroad with her drugs, trying to work out what to do when she couldn't get hold of people, running down the street after having an embryo transfer. Both ladies were just talking about the need for there to be more support and more awareness about what actually this treatment involves, how it can impact on your work. Doesn't mean that you have to sidestep opportunities if the right support is in place for you. It shouldn't be a problem that isn't addressed and not spoken about because you're in a male dominated environment. Having a family is everybody's right. It's not always possible for everybody, but there is the right to try. And hopefully whilst maintaining your job, you shouldn't have to quit makes me really quite mad to hear the stories of people that have had to step down or step sideways to manage what they're doing. AXA asked me to come and talk about fertility in the workplace which is something that I've been putting more emphasis on because I really think this conversation needs to be more prominent. You need to know what your options are if you're going through treatment. Ideally there should be an IVF policy in place but that's not really very common. I was talking at this event about research done by Fertility Network in 2016 where over 50% of the respondents that they spoke to about any awareness of an IVF policy said that there just wasn't one. And the sad fact is that unless we have this conversation more in the workplace and HR professionals and managers understand what going through treatment actually involves, then there's not going to be a policy in place. And more and more of us are going to have to either take annual leave or just call in sick or quit our jobs, which sadly a lot of people are doing. And it's not necessary because if you were given the support and you're given access to say 10 days, which is the ideal, that's what the NHS IVF policy in the workplace states, then at least you'd know that there was ways around dealing with your treatment. Yes, it has an emotional toll on you, of course. I talk about it a lot on this podcast. Of course, you don't necessarily want to tell your colleagues about what's going on. But if you know there's a policy in place and you know that there is somebody you could talk to, maybe there's some kind of shared network for well-being or for parenting or for just general lifestyle. I don't know. I don't work in a corporate setting, so I don't quite know how they're labelled. But somewhere that you can go to talk more, find other people that might have been through this. It was not up for discussion as far as I was concerned. I was afraid of how I would be perceived once I admitted to the treatment that I was going through, that I would be overlooked for any potential promotion that might come up. 
So have a listen to Sheila and her experience and then at the end I'll give you details of how you can get in touch as well as what's going on as part of Fertility Week at the end of October because there's a specific day dedicated to fertility in the workplace and there's going to be an event at the Fertility Show in November where we're going to be talking about this as well. For now here's Sheila, I love chatting to her, I think she's a remarkable woman, she's been through a heck of a lot and like um, we're all trying to do in the TTC space give a voice to difficult topics that aren't spoken about enough i hope you enjoy hi i'm sheila cameron i'm the chief executive of the lloyd's market association in late 2008 my mum got diagnosed with terminal cancer and at that point i wanted to speed up the the journey to having children so that my my mum could meet grandchildren before before she passed away and on that route we she was diagnosed in November 08 and we started pretty much straight after that going through all the tests and I had a running joke of dropping my pants for half the doctors in London trying to figure out what was wrong and and what might be the cause of our infertility and we ended up with the unexplained diagnosis which I think was one of the most frustrating things to be diagnosed with because for me it was a case of I'm not the unexplained person here the unexplained is you, <laughs> medical community, because you haven't done the right test yet or you haven't come up with the right test yet. So I felt the blame was being put on me, so to speak, and, and it just didn't feel right or fair. Uh, and it, it, it just was so frustrating to not know how to go forward, to know that we were going to spend all of this money on, on treatments. And it was, it was, you know, black or red, which one shall we go with? It, it felt like an absolute gamble because we didn't know what the problem was that we were trying to solve. We were just going to throw everything at it. And at that point of being diagnosed, you weren't eligible for any funding. So it was pretty much there's a problem, but you're going to have to go and self-fund. So what happened was we went under NHS initially and went to one hospital in London. and We had an IUI treatment through that hospital. And they said to us, don't worry about it, you know, we, we, if you just pay for the IUI, then you'll still be eligible for IVF treatment to be funded by, by NHS in your, in your local area. And it turned out we were given the wrong advice. So the fact that we had had one IUI that we had paid for meant we couldn't get any NHS funding at all to go forward because the policy of our um, local uh, NHS authority was one treatment and if it's done at an NHS hospital that's it so we can we lost out on both sides both having it done at an NHS hospital thinking it was if we did it privately through them it would be fine but then we we lost our NHS treatment as well which was really frustrating so you know you've got to start working out where to go and what to do and you're in a, a senior level position from the outset, were you adamant that you weren't going to say anything at work? It was just, there was no discussion. It was just something that you just went and got on with. It was not up for discussion as far as I was concerned. Um, I was afraid of how I would be perceived once I admitted to the treatment that I was going through, that I would be overlooked for any potential promotion that might come up, that I would get the ear on the shoulder, people looking at you sympathetically, you know, trying to be empathetic. And I found this subsequent to the, to the birth of my son, there was a lot of benevolent sexism type of thing going on of, well, you won't want to do that because, you know, you've just had a new baby or you won't want to do that. Because, and I felt if I, if, I, if I told people what we were doing, they would take opportunities away from me. Now, as it happened, I started to step back from those opportunities anyway because the journey became quite difficult. 
and quite trying and quite emotionally exhausting. So in an effort to protect myself, I started stepping back. Uh, you know, I, I took easier roles. I took roles that were less demanding from a travel perspective. I stepped back and I really wish I hadn't. At that time, you had told friends and family about it though, so you weren't entirely closed with what was what was happening. So there was some element of support was there. Do you have any peers that had gone through it? So there was some element of support um, in terms of my family that I told and, and a few immediate friends, but I didn't know anybody personally who, who was going through it. I, I suspect afterwards, um, because I didn't tell them, they didn't, they didn't talk, I didn't talk, we didn't know we were going through it at the, at, the, at the same time. So I think that was part of it. But the support that I had from immediate family and friends was great. You know, my, my sister, my, my brother, my dad, they were all incredibly supportive and, and helpful through the journey. But I didn't tell anybody at work, nobody at all. And, you know, when it came to, you know, some, some subsequent experiences where um, I, I had problems at work, um, pregnancy related problems it was a real problem that I hadn't told people that I, of the journey that I was on simple things like I, I, I had to inject Klaxane, I think it was twice a day I had to inject Klaxane and I had nowhere to put the needles because there wasn't anywhere in the office that uh, you could safely um, dispose of them so I ended up carrying in one of those little yellow boxes in my in my handbag so that I could safely dispose them. And if I forgot the box, I then had to wrap the needle up in tissues. And eventually I got to the stage where I realized you could get those needles where it withdrew back into the syringe or a cover came down over the needle, one or the other. And that just made simple things like that easier. But it's, you're hiding this and it becomes so complex, right down to, you know, well, I need to take the injection at this time, or, you know, I need to put the, insert this pessary at this time and you're stuck in an all-day meeting, and mm. you're determined by the timetable of that meeting rather than what you need to do, which is, which is a real challenge as you're hiding it, and it's, you know, it's hard enough to hide it, and then you have got to hide all these other bits that go with it, which makes it a real challenge. And whilst you're going through this, and you're navigating your way through uh, a top-level job, and you're dealing with that stress, you've got your mother, who's terminally ill, do you feel that you stopped and thought about your own mental health and your own well-being in terms of everything you were taking on? Obviously, there's things that you're having to prepare yourself for the inevitable to, to a part, but then there's a kind of bittersweet because you're hoping that you're going to get pregnant as well as having to deal with what ultimately was a bereavement. Yeah, I, I, I didn't plan for it at all. I didn't think it through. I thought I was a really strong, resilient woman. I don't need that help. I'm fine. And how foolish was I? So, uh, when my after my mother was diagnosed, I, I I dropped down at work to do nine days every fortnight. So every second Friday, I would fly back. Every second for Thursday night, I would fly fly back to Dublin, uh, and I'd spend the, that weekend with uh, with my family and with my mum. And I thought I was fine because I had dropped back that back down. But actually, every weekend I used to go home. My, the rest of my family would scatter because they're like, right, Sheila's home, she'll take care of mum this weekend and we can have a, some time off. So I was going hell for leather at work. I was hiding all sorts of stuff at work about my treatment. Then I would go every second weekend back to see my mum. And, you know, and then I was taking care of her 
100% of, almost on my own during during those weekends. So it was a real challenge. And it's only looking back now in hindsight that I think, what the heck was I doing? How could I possibly have thought that my mental health would be okay through that? And what subsequently what subsequently happened after the birth of of our first child was I ended up crashing into postnatal depression. And that's the only way I can describe it. I absolutely crashed into it. Because it was the first time I stopped. It was the first time I stopped in, in you know, to, in the my mum had been diagnosed 18 months before she died, or 19 months before she died. And it was the first time that I stopped to go, okay, right now I've done everything. I've had the child. My, my mum has passed away. And, and my brain just went, okay. And, <laughs> you know, there's just it, it just collapsed. And I didn't realise at the time, actually, that there is a, a huge risk associated with IVF and postnatal depression. So um, I've discovered afterwards through my GP that actually there's a couple of... I was, I, was a, I was a postnatal depression waiting to happen. I'd had a significant bereavement. I'd had a birth trauma because I, I'd, I'd had two, two, uh, four, 48 hours in labour and then ended up with an emergency section. I'd had IVF treatment. I'd had a boy, which I hadn't realised was actually a, a quite a significant factor in um, in, the, in in getting postnatal depression. So I think it's something we need to talk a bit more about in, in, in IVF circles around the risk associated with that, because um, I, I did not take care of my mental health going through the journey at all. And it came back to to haunt me when, when my son was born. Uh, I, it, it was a really rough journey and I, in hindsight, when on subsequent journeys, I made sure I went and I spoke to a counsellor all the way through. Before our first pregnancy, um, I didn't speak to any counsellor. I'm strong enough, I'm good enough, I'm literally fine, I know what I'm doing. And that was a big mistake. I really, really wish I hadn't done that. I really wish I'd prepared myself more for it. Um, and certainly when, when we went on to have our second pregnancy, I made absolutely sure I went and took care of my mental health through the entire process. So I, I, I spoke to a counsellor all the way through the second round of treatment. I spoke to them all the way then through my, to her all the way through my pregnancy and again straight afterwards. So I think three or four days after coming out of the hospital, my first time away from, um, from the twins that we had at the second pregnancy uh, was to go and see the counsellor. And it was... Uh, to this day, I think it's the best thing I ever did was meet with that counsellor and take care of my own mental health. And how did you find out about them? So I remember going to my GP and my GP was great. She diagnosed it fairly quickly. Um, and she, she said, I, I'm not sure if it's delayed grief or if it's truly postnatal depression or what it is. And she said, it doesn't matter. We need to get you help. Um, and she said, but there's none on the NHS. So uh, here's a website, go look that up and see if you can find a counsellor that way. And I remember being horrified, thinking, what? Mm. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in a fortunate position where I can afford to pay for this privately. Uh, and we, we did manage to find somebody. It, it was actually, the, the way we found it was I was going to a cranial sacral therapy for my son. The lady there said, actually, I know some therapists, I'll help you out, I'll, I'll, I'll find you one. That's how we found a local charity that helped women with postnatal health in particular so that lady helped me then for the next two or three years overcome you know a number of issues both in terms of uh, dealing with the grief from my from my mother's uh, passing but also dealing with the 
enormous frustration, disappointment, highs and lows that is the IVF journey. So she wasn't necessarily infertility trained, but she understood and could. She she understood it, and she 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 didn't want to put a label on it. She mm. was just you know, there are so many bumps and lumps that come with mental health after when you become a mother for the first time, and we really need to talk about that more. But she had had experience of dealing with other mothers who had had postnatal depression and had been through the IVF journey. Um, and she, she listened to me rant and rave a lot about how unexplained infertility is just such a horrible label. Yeah. Um, and listened to my rant every now and again. But she helped also help prepare me for whether I wanted to go back on the, I used to term it the IVF treadmill again. Yeah. Uh, and she helped me think that through and helped me think about what that was going to do to my life and whether I was ready to go on that journey or not. So it was absolutely worthwhile and, and I'd strongly encourage anybody to go, go make sure you take care of your mental health just as much as your physical health when you're on the IVF journey. Because some of the conversations I've had with clinics is that they have an approach where from the outset they explain the emotional toll of the treatment and they almost put in place fertility coaches or counsellors to guide you every step of the journey, which to me sounds, you know, the ideal and it's something that I hope more clinics start to take on because you just don't know. And like you said, totally unprepared for what it could be. And then you add in the mix of what you were trying to manage at work, aside from what else was going on in your personal life. It's just too much yeah. for anybody. And I know you said that there was some wellbeing therapy from work. So as far as seeing what's available in the workplace, put yourself back there as to when you sought that out. Was that during your second pregnancy or was that? So uh, actually that was during the IVF treatment. So before Arthur. Before Arthur. So the, the place that I worked in had a policy of having a treatment every single day. So that might be a massage therapist would come in on Mondays, a an acupuncturist on Tuesdays or reflexologies on, on, on Wednesdays and I was of the view do you know what I have no idea if these work or not um, but it's it's good for me to just take some downtime so I would try to do one or two treatments every week and I particularly um, used to fall in love with acupuncture and reflexology and like I said I have no idea if they if they worked if they made a difference I don't know but taking downtime and taking time just to chill out and try and empty my head was a really good thing and worthwhile thing to do. I know from speaking with acupuncturists and reflexologists in this space, and I'll share links to podcasts having those conversations, that there is evidence about the benefits of it. If it was clearly written that this is something for you if you are in the place that you were actually in, would that have been more useful? I used to talk to the acupuncturist a lot about this, and he was fascinated by me because I was taking my temperature every morning you know, as part of the treatment and to know when, when I was fertile. So he, um, he used to give me the uh, herbs to, to take. The tea. Which, yeah, that was awful Oh, stuff. the tea. But we could prove that my temperature dropped every time I was on the tea. So does it work? Does it, is there a scientific link? Absolutely, there is a scientific link there. there. There was a part of me, though, that was also going with my more corporate head on going yes but it's not backed up enough and it, you know I want to see this l listed on the NHS and all the rest of it uh, and eventually I just got over myself and went do you know what this is crazy if it works for me and it and I can prove it and do you know what if, if the worst if the worst that happens is I stop for half an hour or an hour every day great 
that's that's fantastic and I know that's to my benefit and actually we can prove it certainly with the acupuncture we were able to prove it that it, it was having an effect on my body which was which is what we wanted it to do. So staying in the workplace you talked about stepping back from challenging roles there's a significant moment in all that you were going through that you describe as you losing your shit in the office. Run through that for me because I think that was quite a wake up for yourself, wasn't it, when it just leapt out of you? Yeah, so what happened there was after we had successfully conceived um, for the first time and I had the first pregnancy test that was positive, it would appear that I, it, getting pregnant is my problem. <laughs> it was staying pregnant was fine. Uh, or so I thought, and I still hadn't told anybody in the office about what was going on. And I got to 11 and a half weeks, and I was like, oh my goodness, I'm in touching distance, I'm nearly there, I'm nearly there, I'm nearly at the magic 12 weeks. And I was reading all sorts of stuff that said, oh, you know, well, 10 weeks is the new 12 weeks kind of thing <laughs> at the time. And thinking, well, am I there? Should I start talking about it yet? And then uh, at 11 and a half weeks, I had a massive bleed, and I and I just completely, as I said, lost my shit in the office. There was snots and tears everywhere, is the only way to describe it. And I remember um, the chief actuary happened to be near, near me at work and she took me into her office. And she's like, Sheila, what the hell is going on? What's going on? And through the snots and tears, I eventually told her. And she got my boss, who was the, the, the CFO at the time, and the, he, he came in as well. And, and they're like, right, we're just going to get you in a cab. We're going to call your husband for you. We're going to get him over here. We'll get you in a cab. We'll get you home. What else can we do? What else can, can we do? And I wrote to him later that day and said, look, this is the full story. You need to understand how, why I broke down the way I did today. Because it has taken, me, it has taken us years to get to this point. And I was just at that touching distance. And I think I've lost the, the, you know, the one thing that I have been trying so hard for. Uh, and he was amazing. He was incredibly supportive. And, you know, I don't want to see you in the office for at least another week. Just take your time, do whatever you need to do. You know, if there's anything we can help with, let us know. Then the next day I managed to get a, a scan. And it, it proved that there was the heartbeat was still there, so office survived. And then we had another scan, then uh, the, the typical 12-week scan. And that's when we came out and started telling people more publicly. But my greatest regret was not telling work before then. When it hit the fan, they were so supportive and they could not have been kinder, they could not have been gentler with me, they could not have been more supportive. So big regret for me and lesson learned of, you know, trust the people around you, they actually... They're good people. A part of the conversation we're trying to create and normalise is the importance of there being some kind of IVF policy in the workplace, and you said that there, didn't, there wasn't anything policy-wise. No, there wasn't anything at, the, at this time um, in terms of IVF treatment or, or any policy related to, to infertility or fertility itself, So, which was a real shame. But I, it's a debate that we need to have, and it's a debate we need to open up about. You know, the simple things, the example I gave of I had nowhere to put my needles, mm. you know, from, from, from the injections I was taking. There, that's the sort of thing that's really, really simple to overcome. Um, but the, I had nobody to talk to about it. And I didn't know. I remember my uh, the HR manager at the time was pregnant at the exact same time as me. Uh, but she hadn't gone through any of the IVF side of things and trying to explain it to her then subsequently she's like oh my goodness we had no idea we had, we had no idea that this is what you needed in place and you know 
the I understand that the NHS have a policy in some of their trusts which say they will give I think it's about 10 days per year for it to be used flexibly by the by the those undergoing the treatment um, as they see fit and I, and I think that's a great start um, I know if anybody came to me in our office and said I'm about to go on the IVF journey what do you think <laughs> my first response would be well first of all get a clinic near you so I was incredibly lucky that um, I found a clinic that was about 100 metres that had a, a, a scanning and bloods drawing place about 100 metres from our office so that made life just logistically so much easier um, uh, but the other piece of advice I'd give if anybody was coming is just take the time you need it's absolutely fine you know, you and I have, have uh, had a conversation um, about somebody else and, and how she saw uh, a number of uh, people who were, who were having treatments at the same time as her and they stepped back and they actually left their jobs because they felt they needed to do that to cope with the treatments that they were going through and that as an employer that's such a shame you've invested so much time effort money in getting these people up to the level that they're at in making them ambassadors for your organization and we need to keep those people those women are do fantastic work and if it's all for the case of just give them some flexibility to help them on their journey let's just do that and let's you know let's open up the conversation and let's make it normal to talk about because you spoke about one of the reasons that you weren't speaking out about it was because you felt it wasn't a welcome problem. And that language is almost part of the problem, that we think that we are a problem. And you use words like being embarrassed and ashamed. How can we help the conversation in the corporate space with women who are embarking on this journey or have been trying and have just started to have some tests feel that? Because first of all, the shame and the guilt is something that men and women have to overcome when they can't conceive naturally. Nobody wants to walk through a clinic door and it's become less taboo. In the time I've been making the podcast, the conversations have become more free. There's more places online that people are talking about it. Yet in the day-to-day work space, it's either someone knows someone who's had IVF and they say the wrong thing or it's the opposite and nothing can be said. So how do you feel we can encourage the conversation so I think for women in the corporate world they like to see role models typically and they need to see role models and I think a a huge obligation on people like me and others is to speak up about our experiences and make sure that you know seeing somebody quite senior in their in, in their industry talking about it makes a difference you know then you can you can see what you want to be and that makes such a difference to people I know that if I had known of three or four other people in my company or in my industry who'd been through it and I could bring them up and go, oh, can we go have a coffee? Can you, can you talk me through the, your experience and give me any advice that you had? That's where we need to start. Is just any of us who have been through this treatment need to start talking about it because we know how difficult it is at the beginning of that journey, how frightened you feel, how frightened for your the treatment you're about to go on, the amount of money you're about to spend, the, um, the perception that your workplace might have or your manager might have. We all know what that feels like. So let's normalise the conversation and let's try to be role models and talk about it. So you know, I think if anybody who has been through this treatment and come out the other side Either, either with, uh, with a child or without a child or, or, or whatever experience they've had, 
we should talk about it and we should get out there and make sure people hear our story. Let's normalise the conversation. One point that you made to me, which I thought was really vital as well to stress again, was about not being afraid to focus on your career in all of this. Just want to reiterate that. Yeah, so for, so for me, when I, as I said, I dropped down to nine days a week, I dropped back to easier roles. And I really wish I hadn't done that because I was perfectly capable of doing those roles. Now, I should have been looking out more after my mental health, which is a, a slightly separate issue. But I would have been perfectly capable of going after those roles and executing those roles really, really well. And I feel I stepped sideways off my career path for a few years just to, to take easier roles. And I, I know I, I went in and I said, OK, I want that role over there. And my boss saying, are you sure? Are you sure that's, that's the way you want to go? And they're going, yeah, 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 that's the right role for me right now, you know, because I've, I've just got stuff on, so I think this is the right way to go for now. And he subsequently found out why I did that, but I really wish I hadn't. There was nothing stopping me. I still had a good brain. I still knew how to do stuff corporately, how to get stuff done. But I, I just chose to step back, and I really wish I hadn't. And you talked about looking forward, and if there was no baby... Yeah, what, what would have happened if there was no baby? You know, then I would have taken three, four years out of my life, out of my career, at, you know, in my mid to late 30s. So at a time when um, it, it's a critical time for any woman in their, in their career in terms of you, that's the point at which you get some of the bigger roles, you've been tested before you can go, go up the ladder, so to speak. And I stepped back at that point and that, that that's just not the right time to do it because what where could I have ended up? I could have ended up with no children and a, 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 a kind of a stubbed career, you know, one that had been hampered because I had chosen to step back. And where would I have been then? So that's why I feel that was a crazy decision for me to take at the time. Now, I think if I had been looking after my own mental health better at that point, um, I might have made a different set of decisions. Now, we've just been speaking on a panel together as part of the Diving Festival. First of all, I want to thank you because I know that that was the first audience that you had spoken in front of. I know you've been speaking out a bit more in the workplace and you've said every time there's been quite a reaction or the fact that people now know that it's a journey that you went on, they'll talk to you more about it. How do you feel after that conversation and what do you hope that these types of diversity and inclusion conversations create and was there any surprising feedback from anybody in the room? I feel really proud that I've done it. Good. Um, and I feel, you know, a lot of people don't know the story that I've been through, they didn't know, that some people would have known about that I'd done IVF, but they would not have known about my mother being, having terminal cancer, you know, how devastating it was for me personally and still is to this day that she never got to meet her grandchildren. Um, and. Most importantly, I've never spoken out about postnatal depression, and even when I do talk about um, my fertility experience uh, or infertility experience, I had never really spoken publicly about the postnatal depression side. So that was a big step for me to talk about that today. But I think it's incredibly important, and I think it's incre incredibly important we talk about this side of infertility and IVF and all that happens with it that people don't seem to be aware of. You know these. There are so many risk factors out there for postnatal depression and going through going on an IVF journey is another risk factor 
and we need to talk about that and we need to prepare women who are on those journeys to make sure that they know what that, 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 that this is a possible side effect that, that, that they could experience. Because if when you're sat in those early days of consultations and the, the consultant says, and then there's this, and then there's this, then, the, then of course you'd just be like, oh my God. But I guess at least the conversation's there. And like you say, then you could say, okay, I'm going to arm myself with a counsellor and I'm going to arm myself with headspace and I'm going to not necessarily take a lesser role, but I am going to allow myself to have some flexibility in the workplace. Mm. And you'd just be more prepared, wouldn't you? Absolutely. I mean, in hindsight, when I, I remember after Arthur was born and I went to, to meet my GP and I was just crying and crying and crying. And she just looked at my, at my notes and she went, oh my goodness, you've got every risk factor except for one. Uh, and the one I didn't have was a history of, 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 of depression. But I was like, why, why didn't anybody see this beforehand? You know why wasn't why wasn't I told that this might happen? Why wasn't I told that this was a huge risk? And I wouldn't expect to be told it up front. That that's okay. But I think once you know I'd gone through the twelve week mark and I was, you know, looking like I was going to embark on a successful pregnancy, then we should we should have had that conversation. And you know my either the consultant I was seeing at the hospital, or my GP, or a midwife. And Were you seeing really the same GP and same consultant at each time? I was seeing the same consultant each time because I was high risk. So, uh, because of the the blood uh, the blood thinners that I was on throughout the pregnancy and, and for another three months afterwards, so I was deemed high risk. And and with the second pregnancy with the twins, I was deemed obviously high risk at that point as well. So I had the same consultant both both times. Um, I don't think mental health was particularly top of his list. But I know the midwives, when I came second time around, with the, when I was pregnant with the twins, I was watched a lot more closely second time around, which really helped knowing that that safety net was there around me and people were, were looking out for me. Now, as it happened, I, I, I didn't um, experience any postnatal depression after the twins. Um, I, I was very lucky not to. But, you know, it's, it's back to let's just talk about what all these risk factors are so we all go in with our eyes open, particularly if you get you find out it's at 20 weeks that it's a boy mm. and you know you've had you've recently had a major bereavement and you've been through IVF treatment and you you know you work at a, at a big job in the city so you know that tick 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 yeah. tick in terms of risk factors. I think it's massively kind of powerful to point that out and it's something that really stuck with me when you first made those points and I think like you say if we can just educate people and I wonder if with the twins because you were so much more aware and you'd invested in the counselling and the support and like you say you had more support from people along the way that all those different contributing factors helped you through it. Absolutely I think I did and it, it, it helped that I was taking care of my own mental health and that I had, I had prioritised it even before we got pregnant. Um, so I was talking to my counsellor and right well how will I feel when this happens or if that happens. Um, and then when I found out it was twins, it was like, oh, I need to talk to you now. <laughs> so, um, but she was fantastic and, and an enormous support and helped me to focus on, on the right things on, along the journey. So if someone's listening and they're working in a corporate environment and this is literally screaming you know, at them as to, as to things that they need to address, is it HR? Is it manager? Is it what's the first port of call that you would advise in the position that you're in to somebody find somebody else who's been through the journey there will be you know it's one in six 
there's probably somebody else on the floor in your, you know, in, 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 on the same floor that you work on, if not one or two people who, have be, who are going through the same journey or have been through it. This is why it's so important for, us, for those of us that have come out the other side to talk about it. Because we need to be there and be the role models and the allies for those people who are just starting on this journey. And I really desperately wish I had had somebody at my office back then who, who I could have just spoken to and gone, oh my word, <laughs> what's all this about? What do I do? How do I navigate it? And just having somebody to support me if I wanted to go and talk to HR. Now, I don't think HR would have been, at that time, they, I don't think they knew what to do. I, they wouldn't have known what to do. But to speak with somebody and say, well, actually, you should go and tell them X or Y or Z that, you know, you need time off to just pop in and out and do these scans or you know you can do those at lunchtime or you have the blood draws at this time and that you just need some flexibility. I think also your immediate line manager is really, really important in this journey because if you have somebody who's an absolute clock watch who said, right, well, you were 37 minutes and you said you'd only be 30, I mean, that's a real challenge and that's a it's really difficult to deal with individuals like that and in that case you do need some, somebody like HR but you can have fantastic amazing supportive line managers like as it turned out I had and didn't realise I had who would just protect you and support you on your journey so you just need to find those allies, find those role models, find those people like you and me who've been on that journey who are prepared to stand up for you and advocate for you and to help you on this journey. So the show notes for this episode are thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash dive in. There I'll give you details of the fertility in the workplace conversation as part of Fertility Week, starting from the 28th of October. Also the event taking place at the Fertility Show, which is on Friday the 1st of November. We're having a conversation about it with two HR professionals that have been through fertility treatment, talking about the policies, uh, the ideal that should be in place, uh, what conversations to have with management, and really just arming you with all you need to hopefully have these challenging conversations at work. Please do rate and review, subscribe and share this podcast. You can also follow me at Fertility Poddy on Insta and Twitter. And if you'd like to join my closed Facebook group, which is Talk Fertility, then do come and have more of a conversation. You can let me know what you think of the episode. You can ask questions to other people. And I've also got experts from previous episodes who pop in to answer your questions too. Thank you as always for your support. It means the world, you know it does. And it's lovely to hear what you think of the episodes. And until the next time, 